I See You, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. I see you. Let's be friends. Welcome to I See You. This is episode 32, Pornography Addiction, part two, The Addict in Recovery. Guys, I'm so excited. We're talking about porn. It's about time, right? On this last Friday, I released part one of this three-part series on pornography addiction. The series, it follows one married couple's journey to healing from pornography addiction. In part one, we heard the perspective of the spouse, Brianna. Today, we're going to hear the perspective from the addict in recovery, one of my greatest heroes, my big brother, Eric. Today's episode blows my mind. It's crazy. I sat there And I listened and recorded these interviews, but yesterday as I was editing and listening back to the words he said, I just, I couldn't believe the openness and humility of my brother, who I just love more and more the more I understand his path and his journey. I feel honored to have him on this podcast. Before we get to that, let's highlight our review. This is from Nikki-L-K, five stars, titled You Read My Mind. I've only listened to two episodes, but I'm already blown away at how you seem to be peering into my heart and brain and saying all the things. Seriously, the issues you're addressing are exactly what I'm thinking and pondering about in my own life right now, and they are the things that need to be discussed, dissected, and understood if we are to move forward as a culture in and outside the church. I wish you and I could see each other in real life. I'm confident we'd be great friends. I am loving the realness, the depth, and the vulnerability. Please keep it coming. I am a huge podcast consumer, but I've never written a review until now. Thank you so much for saying what you are saying. Oh, I got the chills as I read that, Nikki. The thing that I thought is that God knows us and he knows what people need to hear. And I feel grateful that he is using me. He's using uh, my imperfectness and he is sending messages to you. That's incredible. The fact that you're a huge podcast consumer and you've never written a review until now, that that's a big deal. Sometimes it feels like work to write a review, right? So I so appreciate you just taking that minute to do it. Thank you so much for your words. Please, if you haven't rated and reviewed the podcast, it's doing good. It's doing good in people's lives and that will help it get out there to people's ears. Friday, I'm going to be releasing part three where the couple will talk together about their marriage and the hope that they feel in this pornography addiction series. Also, remember that in the show notes, I will list many resources for anyone whose life has been affected by pornography addiction, which is almost all of us. Here we go. All right, we're going to start part two of pornography addiction with the addict in recovery. So now we're going to shift the focus. We're all still in the same living room with the lovely Brianna, who we heard from in part one. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, please go back and listen to it. We're going to go ahead and now talk to my sweet brother, who is the pornography addict in recovery. So Eric, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am Eric. (laughs) (laughs) I am a nerd. You know, I grew up looking under rocks, looking for bugs, and I am an engineer. I love math. I love math. I just <laughs> yeah. love math. I just want to hug it. <laughs> I like solving problems. That's been an interesting part of a marriage, right? So I always think I can solve problems. Sometimes mm-hmm. I've, I've had to learn that I can't always solve problems. You're a big deal. I'm a big deal. <laughs> it's true. Do you have any hobbies? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing that addiction has done a little bit. Some of my hobbies have gone away. 
is I've had to focus on this. I like watching birds. I like keeping animals. I used to keep a saltwater reef tank. I love nature and I like fishing and camping and soccer, watching BYU football. You're very artistic, very good at drawing. Mm-hmm. You are the one man I've ever trusted to cut my hair. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're very like detail oriented. Yeah. That's something really specific that me and Rob always talk about with you. Or like Eric will get it right. Like he, he just, he gets things right. He's an artistic an eye, eye. Like if we need to rearrange furniture or pictures on the yeah. wall, it's not me. It's totally him. I want to do it, but I trust him because he just has good taste. You're, you're really good at that. You really are. Yeah. Well, thank you. I enjoy art and design and things. I want you to talk to us about your journey, your perspective with pornography addiction. Pornography, sexual addiction didn't start as an addiction. I remember as a kid taking Barbie dolls and undressing them, hiding and exploring that way. I would occasionally hide underwear ads and things that I found in the mail or whatever. I looked at Victoria's Secret magazines and Scouts one time, I remember. But pornography didn't really, it didn't become, it wasn't a big thing for me prior to my mission. When you talk about mission, it's a two-year service mission where you go and you teach people about Christ and you serve people. Right. Go teach people about the gospel. So you're supposed to be doing all good things, right? And you're not supposed to have relationships with girls. I was doing that, but in my head, I was not doing that. I served in Venezuela, and Venezuela was just full of pornography. You know, as sexualized as our culture is here in the United States, it was way worse in Venezuela. The billboards were way bigger and way more explicit and, and just walls plastered pornography. I didn't actively look at pornography, but I struggled a lot with maintaining a clean mind and clean thoughts. I worked hard to try to be a good missionary, but I struggled. As a kid, you know, I was taught the right things. I was taught really well. I didn't talk to people about struggles and it was all just so evil thinking in my head. Anyway, so after my mission, I got a job working late nights and alone with a laptop. I wasn't good at what I was doing. I struggled with it. I felt bad about not getting enough done. And I started looking at pornography. Brianna and I, we got married, what was it, a year and a half after I got home from my mission. So I hadn't been acting out for a long time. And prior to getting married, prior to starting dating, really, I went through this repentance process kind of by myself. I didn't talk to anyone about it at the time and just kind of stopped looking at pornography. Then I started dating Brianna and things went really well. And I talked to her after getting engaged. I wish I'd done it before getting engaged, but it worked out fine. But you still got engaged? I think so. Yeah. I was pretty head over heels for Eric. And definitely the Lord had a big hand in our relationship and we just knew that it was right. But that is a good question. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, it was kind of crazy dating Brianna because all of a sudden the Lord was very involved in my life. And it it felt a little bit like, okay, this girl has decided that she likes you. So we're going to We're going to try to work with this. We're going to try to figure out how to make this work. Because Brianna, those of you that know Brianna, she's an amazing woman. You know, we went and talked to the bishop. As Brianna talked about, we went and saw a therapist. And I really thought that problem had been taken care of. When we got married, it had already been six months that I hadn't looked at pornography. And and I remember the therapist talking to us about how it was going to be a struggle like eight months after we got married or something. And I think I went close to a year after we got married without falling back into pornography. But I did. I fell back in. She would catch me. I would partially confess what was going on. I was scared. What were you scared of? I was just really uncomfortable talking about it. I mean, to start with, every boy and girl, they grow up 
wanting to fall in love, wanting to have eyes only for their love and to fall in love and have nothing compare and have that be your life, right? And the fact that I wasn't experiencing not feeling anything except for Brianna made me feel really bad. I felt really guilty about it. You know, I felt really shameful about the fact that here I was, you know, like kind of acting apart, trying to be a good person. I was a hypocrite. I don't think that I was totally a hypocrite though. I wanted to do things, but I didn't understand well how to handle my feelings and what was right and what was normal and what was wrong. And it was all mixed up kind of. And so I felt really shameful about how, how things were. And I knew that Brianna, she was super innocent and didn't understand at all my interest in pornography, mm-hmm. right? She didn't understand at all the attraction to it. You know, I don't even know if she was completely honest with me, but basically she kind of acted like she never felt any physical attraction towards men or, <laughs> or whatever. Like she was in love with me as a, you know, my mind and stuff. Your like, soul. My soul, right? She told me she was physically attracted to me, but you know, it was like, oh, this is my first experience thinking that the boy's cute kind of thing. And I'm like over here, uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, and not exactly sure what to do with it, kind of, you know? Well, I mean, I so that was the beginning. I mean... Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine, I was just going to say, I can't imagine because on a much lower scale, that experience is really weird after you get married, that you can still find yourself attracted to the opposite sex. You still notice that other people are attractive. Yeah. You can still be in love with your spouse yeah. and still notice other people. And it's kind of unnerving. Yeah. Even without having an addiction, it's, it's still unnerving for me sometimes. Right. It can be uncomfortable, but... That's normal. Yeah. That's normal. Yeah. I know I do, and I think a lot of people within the Christian religions have a fairy tale version of what they expect after marriage in terms of how they feel about members of the opposite sex and misconceptions about sexuality. And, and obviously, every time that Brianna and I talked about it, it was just like, you know, it was a this is not supposed to happen thing and just stop. Not that Brianna really talked to me in those terms, but that's how I felt about it. Just stop. You know, stop. but then I didn't stop. I feel bad about that. I always felt bad. I feel bad anytime I'm doing something wrong. And it's like, well, I don't really want to talk about something I'm doing wrong that I haven't changed yet. Yeah. Like, I don't want to sit here and talk about how I'm doing a bad job at whatever. And I haven't done anything to fix it. After acting out was always, I've got to repent. I've got to stop. And then after I stop, I'll go talk to the bishop and then I'll be a year clean and I'll be able to go to Brianna and say, hey, look, I'm done with this. But I never got to a year. Mm-hmm. It just didn't happen. So I was always kind of had this attitude of, I got to be out of this before I can talk to Brianna. Before I bring it out. Right. So that's, that's a big part, I think, of why, at least initially, I was hiding and things. I didn't have a good understanding of how she felt about it. So I wasn't nearly as afraid as I should have been for, about her finding out about it. That was coming. Anyway, it went a while with kind of some back and forth. You know, she'd find something, you know, she'd do a search on her browser and it would, suggested search or whatever would be questionable looking and she would come and confront me and we'd talk about how I was having a hard time. Kudos to you for confronting him. That's brave. Yeah. And sucky. Like talk about the just, ugh. Yeah, really sucky. Biggest, crappiest pit in your stomach and you feel like you're going to vomit and explode all at once. It's the worst. You know, most of the time when she would confront me, I was in the mode of I'm trying to be better and I'm trying to repent. I felt pretty good about where I was at. It's crazy how weird my thought processes were. When you don't talk to anyone about it, you don't say your thoughts out loud, they can get kind of weird. You can kind of believe weird things. 
Yeah. completely agree with that. That's truth right there. Which is why we need connection so badly, because we need to be able to talk about our thoughts yeah. out loud. Because then you have other people that can, can challenge things and can yep. help you see a different perspective instead of yeah. Satan gets you alone in your head and then can believe anything. Even myself, if I just said these things out loud, I would say, that sounds stupid. Right? right? That doesn't make any sense. We were rolling along like that. There were some worse moments. I had a commitment when we got married that I wasn't going to lie about this. That was a commitment that we made. And so early on, I would try to avoid lying about it, not telling the truth. At some point, she confronted me right after I'd acted out. I lied. And things kind of changed then, I think, a little bit. The worst of my addiction happened during that period. I was acting out more frequently and getting worse in terms of content and stuff. I stopped fighting as much. Can I ask a question real quick yeah. before you move on mm -hmm. that I think might be helpful? So my understanding with pornography addiction is when you're actively trying to fight against it, you don't necessarily have to get into more and more explicit different content. But if you're if you're not so actively fighting against it, your brain kind of needs something more and different and needs to go further down the path. Is that understanding true? If you're trying to get out of it, it's still exciting enough to the brain to kind of stay at a certain level. If you're not trying to get out of it, at some point your brain needs something more, something different. Yeah. Sexual addiction is progressive. If unchecked, it will progress to harder, core, more violent, more explicit. I just thought that could be helpful for people listening because there are people out there that they don't see pornography as a drug or they don't see pornography as that big of a problem. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that believe that. But scientific research and as we learn more about the brain, it doesn't just stay in one spot. Mm -hmm. I'm not an expert on the chemistry of the brain. You know, I've read experts' writings about how addiction works. They make sense to me based on my experience. Pornography starts as attraction. And it started for me that way, you know, long before we got married. I was attracted to women, obviously, as I was growing up and hormones were raging and I was learning about my feelings and stuff. And it was fun to see women. It's great. They're beautiful. I don't know why, but I don't think I had a good, clear understanding of the difference. The difference between what was good, yeah, women are beautiful and their bodies are beautiful. You're meant to be attracted I'm to them. I'm supposed to be attracted to them. And it's okay that I think that that their bodies are beautiful. That's okay. People that know me, I was like a straight-laced good kid. I would try to talk about women in good ways and, you know, I would never participate in locker room talk or anything like that. Even just as a little sister thinking back, I think I was observant of that. Always yeah. very respectful. Always. Not crude. You were never, no, never not that way. I was bought into that we should, we should like women because of their personalities, not because of their looks. That was something that I took very seriously, right? And so there was this part of me that was very natural and good that I was fighting. Not that the things aren't true, but also men are attracted to women and that's the way that God made us. And it's great. And it's okay. It's meant to be that way. It's okay to find physical attraction towards the women around yeah, you. Yeah, you don't have to feel shameful about it. You don't it. have to feel bad about that. For I mean, sure. you should treat women with respect and all of those things, but... I like Brianna in part because I think she's freaking hot. You know, I mean, like, that's okay. Yeah. It's a wonderful part of our marriage. My experience was when I was not trying to stop, when I was not immediately feeling guilty after acting out, then, yes, I was looking for more. Mm -hmm. You know, I was looking for more and different. It wasn't necessarily I was looking for something worse, but I was looking for something else. Because the fact is, is that pornography doesn't fulfill the need. 
Yeah, and it never will. It'll never be enough. It doesn't, because the desire to look at a woman is a natural thing that is supposed to turn into a connection. It's supposed to be, I want that woman. She looks beautiful. I go talk to her. We spend time together. We, We sleep together. We talk about whatever together. We're vulnerable together. We have a connection together that is there. And pornography, you jump to looking at and next image, yeah. you know, next thing, whatever. And it's just never enough. Pornography is never enough for anyone. It just isn't. Because it's not a real connection. It's false connection. Right. It leaves an emptiness because the brain is dumping these chemicals like, oh, we're going down this path. We're I know what to do with this. Connect. And yeah. then the process stops. But it's hard because it's so close to what it's supposed to be. It's so close that you get tricked really easy. You know, it's not enough, so you look for more. And as you do it more frequently, your brain dumps out those chemicals more often. And the receptors that experience the feelings, they become desensitized. And you need more. You need longer. You know, I mean, it's a fact that people that look at pornography and masturbate, it becomes harder and harder for them to experience sexual fulfillment. Mm, In their normal relationships. In their normal relationships, or even with the pornography. Another thing about Eric is sometimes I can talk, okay? Mm -hmm. Not always, but sometimes I can talk. I never knew this till now. If you get me talking, (laughs) I may not shut up as much as you tell me to. I was going through this period. You know, it was a dark period, right? It was when things were just the worst. And it was intermittent that we were having these things come up and I was starting to lie a little bit more directly. And I was trying to still not lie and whatever, but there were things I had to deal with. You know, it's hard to have an outward life where I'm going to church every week, getting up and bearing my testimony in church, getting up and telling people about how much I love the gospel, how I want to be righteous. And it was, it was true. But there was also this two-facedness that was going on that I didn't know how to control this other side of me. I couldn't figure out how to stop. What kind of things did you do to try to stop? You know, I got taught as a kid that repentance meant praying and asking for forgiveness. You know, you're supposed to confess. I go to my bishop and confess. And I had one bishop tell me, well, you don't need to confess every time when you do this. You know, maybe that's true, but that gave me the excuse to not do that. So I stopped confessing to my bishop. But you had a notebook that you kept track of the days in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I tried to, you know, I keep track of days. You know, we put passwords on things. I I did these little flares of excitement and then it it was gone. And then I would just... You'd try and come up with some new system to control it. You'd be excited about it for a little bit and then you'd just fall back. Yeah, I mean, it would last a day. I had a period there where I was acting out more frequently. I don't know exactly how much, but my normal cycle through the years was I would act out. I might act out a couple times in a row sometimes. I would feel really bad about it. I wouldn't want to pray because I'd feel really dark. Next morning or something, I'd get up and feel guilty and I would pray and I would ask for help and forgiveness. And then that day I'd be all gung-ho about like I'm going to change and whatever. But then by the next day I was done and it was... I figured it out. I'm changed. I'm different. And uh, okay, let's move forward. I mean, I talk about trying to change so much, but in reality, I mean, did I do that much? Life kind of threw a curveball at me, though. We had our, our oldest was two years old, and she got some bruises on her. We had another baby that was two months old. So Brianna wanted to go to the doctor to talk about these bruises. I told her that kids have bruises, and I didn't think much of it. I had to work. Brianna didn't want me to go to work. She wanted to go to this doctor's appointment. Brianna called me from the doctor's appointment and told me that the doctor was worried and that some blood tests had come back really bad and that we needed to hurry and go up to 
primary children's hospital. The doctor was pretty sure that she had leukemia, and I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that that was a bad word. And I rushed over to the doctor's office. We went in and I looked and her legs were just covered more, double the number of bruises is what I saw before. And she had these little freckles all over her body. She was bleeding internally, kind of. She had an enlarged liver and spleen and she had a heart murmur and her oxygen was low. And there were a lot of problems. She was doing bad. Within the church that we belong to, we have priesthood blessings that a father can give a blessing of healing to their children if they're righteous and worthy. And based on their faith, it can heal. And I have experienced that. And so Brianna asked me to do that with our daughter. But you're not supposed to do it if you're not worthy. I don't know where it was, but I was definitely felt very guilty about the pornography situation. I didn't feel like I could explain it away and say that I was repentant in that moment and that I was somehow okay. But I went ahead and gave her a blessing anyway. I just felt terrible because here was my daughter who was dying. You know, the doctors told us after we got everything diagnosed and stuff that she was, you know, within a day or two of dying if we hadn't got her started on treatment. So she's there dying. Pornography has gotten in my way of blessing her. It was, it was devastating for me. We rushed to the hospital. She got diagnosed with leukemia. I died inside. I asked my father to give her a blessing. I felt like mine was worthless. I spent the next couple of months really dead inside. Well, I made a commitment. I kneeled down and I prayed and I said, Father, save my daughter. I will stop looking at pornography. Save my daughter. I tried to make a bargain with him to save her life. And then like all my other flares of excitement and trying to change, I looked at pornography again. She had chemo for two and a half years. I spent the entire treatment on this roller coaster of trying to make a commitment to stop looking at pornography and to be righteous and good. Did you feel guilty for her cancer that it was somehow linked to the fact that you had a pornography addiction or that it would have gone away faster or you would get better results? Was that linked in there the whole time for you? Yeah. You know, that's not the only thing that's happened in our life. You know, my mom talks about me having a lightning rod on my head. We've had a number of things. And when I was actively acting out, when I was not being able to recover, when I was not in recovery, I did wonder if it was all punishment, if it was all my fault. I felt like that if I could stop looking at pornography, that that could be fixed and that I could save my daughter's life. And I didn't stop. And that's what addiction looks like. Yeah. Wanting to stop so bad, having every reason in the world to stop, and still not being able to stop. I mean, isn't that addiction? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what more motivation I could have had than a feeling that I could stop my daughter's cancer somehow, save her life, if I could stop this. I think for people that wonder, is pornography an addiction? I think your answer is right there. Yes. Pornography is an addiction, yes. If you're wondering that, yes, it is. It's not an addiction for someone who looks at it once. But if somebody's not able to stop and it's destroying their life. I mean, I've been in this program and I'm not going to talk specifics, but it has destroyed a lot of people's lives. I'm friends with all kinds of walks of life. People in jail, divorced, yep. like lost so their families, just yep. everything. Lost their jobs, ravished their lives. I have close relationships with men who have abused children. Just all kinds of horrible circumstances. So many men that are there crying in a recovery meeting because their wife has left them and they can't solve the problem. 
you know, so many men, uh, just all different situations, you know, 80, 90 year old men, people struggle with this. It devours your life. I've got probably half a dozen people in meetings who were heroin addicts who came to meetings and talk about how they overcame their drug addictions and they can't get over pornography. They can't stop. It's a different animal. Like, it's not the same. It's not a chemical addiction. There's some chemical things going on with the brain chemistry, but it's not exactly the same as heroin. Or It's different than that. The behaviors are the same. The trying to cope are the same. You know, an advantage to, to a lot of other types of addiction is the ability to get away from your addiction. With pornography and masturbation, you have everything with you. You have everything in your head. You can act out at any time. You can't flush something down the toilet. I haven't had chemical abuse addictions. And I don't want to in any way say that they're, they're just devastating. Yeah, you're not minimizing the pain of those. No. Pornography can't kill you. I mean, maybe your wife will kill you, but <laughs> pornography can't kill you, right? Right. Maybe Brianna will kill you. <laughs> yeah. You know, it definitely can lead to risky behavior that could kill you. It definitely can be a problem, but by itself, it's never going to kill you. You can look at pornography all day. You're still going to breathe. Because of that, the consequences of pornography, it's easy to not be afraid of continuing on. When I was in the worst of my addiction, I did not think I could change. The period with my daughter having cancer, I was going kind of longish periods. I mean, a few weeks or a month between acting out. And I realized that I couldn't change. But the difficulty of dealing with a kid with cancer, it was all-encompassing in our family's life. At some point there, I recognized I need help. We needed help with cancer treatment first. I couldn't throw this on top. I did the same thing with colon cancer. I thought I had colon cancer for like two years and I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want to like also do colon cancer. It's stupid. I didn't have colon cancer. I didn't want to throw this burden on Brianna. I'm so stupid. I don't know. That period was horrible. I hid for four years. My daughter, she made it through. God didn't kill her because I wouldn't change, couldn't change. So Brianna was pregnant with our third daughter and I had continued to struggle. And when we found out while Brianna was in labor that right at the very end that our daughter had died. Another time that I thought that God was punishing me, that I was destroying our family, that my poor wife who was so heartbroken about losing our little one, that it was all my fault. I made this one last commitment that I would absolutely stop, that I would not drag our family through any more of these things. And I stopped. And then Brianna went out of town a couple months later, and I acted out again. I made it two months on that commitment, just white knuckling. I acted out again. It was like a binge. And it was scary because it was worse than it had been. I had been doing pretty good, kind of. I mean, pretty good such a lie, but... I was scared by, you know, not feeling like it was enough and having to keep trying. You know, I acted out, I don't know, three times in 24 hours or something while she was gone. I realized that I was not going to change, that I couldn't change. Somehow it was really scary this time because if my commitment to changing to stop having my kids die was not enough, which is kind of a ridiculous commitment. But if it was not enough, where I thought it was real that I was doing it, then nothing could be enough. It was so hard because Brianna was very much in the middle of mourning, crying every day about losing our daughter. And, but I knew I could not move forward anymore with this problem. I had to have help. I didn't know what I needed, but I knew that whatever I could do wasn't going to work. I went and talked to my bishop before she got back from her trip. 
we kind of both agreed that it wasn't a good time to talk to Brianna about it. But over the next day or two, as I kept thinking about it, I needed freedom to work on things that were not, I needed to not be hidden. So I could go and find whatever help I needed. So I talked to Brianna and she had always been so supportive and so we're going to get through this and she would not. That was not the Brianna that showed up that night. She was so disgusted and angry, as she should have been. I kind of said, well, whatever I can do, well, let's do that. I started going to these addiction recovery meetings. I was talking to my bishop once a week or something. I moved forward and I started going through the 12 steps. We set up an appointment with a fantastic sex addiction therapist in Arizona. Shout out to Dan Oaks. He's the man. Dan the man. But things were rough at first. I started reading the New Testament, and I read in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that it's not good enough to just not commit adultery, but you shouldn't lust after anyone either, or you've already committed adultery in your heart. I hated that verse, and I read that verse the first or second day, and I was just like, wow, that's me. I can't hide from that. He's talking about me. And I didn't feel like I was an adulterer. Like, oh, that's some other person. Although, I I mean, if I kept down this road, I was probably where I was going. If you kept down this road, you could have seen yourself having an affair eventually. Yeah. I don't think there's any limit to what I could have done if I had given up. Because that's what addiction does, right? It's never enough. Yeah, there there was no limit. A huge part of embracing the atonement and of embracing change is recognizing that none of us are superhuman and all of us are capable of anything if we do not check certain things. I am capable of all of those things as well Yeah. if I don't put myself in a position every day to succeed. Yeah. There may be people out there that hear that and are like, no, I can never do that. Yeah. That's not how it works. And you stay out of those things by recognizing, no, I could do that. Yeah. That's why I don't participate in these situations. Yeah. You change. You push one line and you can keep pushing lines. And as something that was really bad before, as it becomes normalized, then other things become possible. I mean, that's that's scary stuff. For me, that's stuff that's hard to talk about. But there were temptations of all sorts that I dealt with. And it is ugly. I know so many people that have gone down different paths. And I know where I was at. When I hear a story on the news about some person who's done something horrible, I kind of see myself in the mirror. Not that I've done that, but it's scary because I knew that I was out of control. I was not being satisfied. And I was not being controlled in what I was doing. And I was doing things that were against my beliefs. Sure, that's a scary feeling. Yeah. You know, I talked all the time to men that took the next steps, that moved into the next behavior, that moved into whatever it was. Good men that I sit in a recovery meeting and, and we talk and I know that they're genuine and that they want to be different than they were. And they need to take a break from recovery meetings so they have to go to jail. It's just crazy. Pornography is bad. It's a gateway drug to the rest of sexual addiction and deviancy. But by itself, it's really terrible to my wife and to me and to the other women in my life and in the world. So for me, change, it started when I gave up. It started when I, when I recognized that I was not able to change. You know, here in Utah, in the addiction recovery meetings, there's a little bit of a question about whether or not we should call ourselves addicts. Is it a bad habit? Is it an addiction? Am I an addict or am I just a person with an addiction? 
I don't know that that question necessarily matters, but for me, me being able to say I'm an addict, it answered the question of what do I need to do to change. I like that. It let me say, this is what I'm dealing with. I'm defining it, and now I know how to be different. Because as an addict, it means that I don't have control. I need to go check myself into it. Something, I got to do things. Addicts have, you know, they have successful addiction recovery programs out there. That We know how to deal with addiction. We know what to do. It's not rocket science. There by myself, dealing with addiction, not naming it addiction, I was dealing with a problem that was impossible to solve. Admitting that, that I was an addict and that I had an addiction that I could not get out of, it was the most freeing thing. It's, it's crazy because it's like I'm admitting that I'm trapped, but all of a sudden I started to feel free. When I talked to Brianna, and Brianna was mad for months when things were rough, and I started going and I started religiously reading the scriptures. I talked about that scripture about not thinking about it. The next verse, Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. And so I'm sitting there reading that, and I went and got something. And as you know, I don't have one of my eyes. <laughs> right? It's hard to know where to look. <laughs> right. Where to look. Pick an empty eye socket, Julie. <laughs> I did not pluck out my eye. But I did recognize that I had everything on the table. That I needed to be willing to do whatever it took. That I couldn't have things reserved. That verse, that idea was a big part of my moving into recovery. Jesus asked me to pluck out my eye if it's offending me because it's, if it's destroying my body, it's better to destroy one member than to destroy everything. And I was destroying everything. I had no idea when I confessed this time to Brianna that we would be talking about divorce. That was a swear word in my life. That was never something that I thought of as an option in our marriage which I think is a huge, wonderful thing. It shouldn't be something that's just pulled out all the time. But to realize that I had broken the commitment to her and that she wanted out, it was shocking. One day to the next, talking about her wanting to stay in our marriage for the kids. It was like living a different life that wasn't mine. I'd been faking it for so long, it was so weird. Have her talk about, no, I just, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can be around you. And here I was trying, trying to be different finally. And she was falling apart. Another major moment of turning, I was laying on a friend's couch, you not know, welcome in my house. And I was reading in the New Testament because I was doing that. It was pretty early there on. And I read about the rich young man, if you know the story. The rich young man comes to Jesus and says, I'm keeping all the commandments. What lack I yet? And Jesus says, well, go sell everything that you own and give it away and come follow me. You know, he goes away sad. And then his disciples say, how can anyone go to heaven if you have to give away everything and sell everything and keep all the commandments? And how can anyone make it to heaven? At least I read, he said, not one person goes to heaven who hasn't given up their house and their food and their money and their love of hunting and their whatever and their father and their mother and their children and their spouse. And I was losing Brianna at that moment. And I realized that I had to live my life not for Brianna. I was doing everything to not 
confess to Brianna and to not hurt her, to not have her feel bad about the fact that I was this evil person or whatever. It was all about hiding and my messed up relationship with Brianna. And I sat there in that bed and I read that scripture and I said, I have to change and I have to live my life for me and my God. That night I had been kicked out of the house because I was not there to help take care of the kids when they were screaming because I was at an addiction recovery meeting. I mean, it was just like on top of everything. And Brianna was just irate that I had to go to any addiction recovery meetings at all that I ever participated in this. And I wasn't there to help her. And it seemed to me, it was like, well, I'm trying to do what I can do and I'm getting kicked out of the house. And so it was a good moment for me though, to be able to say, I have to do this not because of Brianna. I think that's so important for all of us, our motivations, is why are we doing things? Are we doing, if we're just doing things for someone else, then it, it's not going to be enough. I went through the 12 steps. I made significant progress. You know, that was over five years ago. I really haven't looked back since then. I have had a couple of slips that were nothing like they were before. Some really frustrating moments. It's amazing. I was just sitting here with Brianna last night thinking about it. I've been to an addiction recovery meeting. I still go every week. And one of the steps talks about how you have done everything now to be forgiven. You know, you've done everything to reconcile your life with God and the people that you've harmed. It's just incredible and insane that here I was for so long doing this. And after such a short period of time of change, that this just total miracle of change had happened in my life that I had gone from being just shameful and hating myself and doing things that I did not like at all to being able to kneel before my God and being able to stand before my wife and say, I'm sorry, and I'm not going back. And to be able to have any level of confidence to do that was just, it was just amazing. It was incredible. There is hope. There is hope. And it's a terrible path to walk. The podcast called I See You. And I advocate that compassion and connection truly save lives. What are some ways that we can see someone that has a pornography addiction? It's a hard thing because pornography addicts, either they're just unrepentant and don't think it's bad and don't understand where they're at, or they are filled with shame. I guess just understand that we're normal people out there. We're really common. What does really common mean? I don't know exact numbers. You know, I mean, obviously it's so hidden that you can't get exact numbers. I mean, I've heard all kinds of different statistics. You know, I had one group of men that I confessed that I was struggling with this problem with after moving into recovery and 40% of them within the next year had talked about how they struggled with this problem. Currently we're struggling with Yeah, them. yeah. Like they'd come to me and said, hey, I'm struggling with this problem. I don't know how to change. And I took them to the meetings with me. And it's very common. It exists in all of our congregations. It exists at our work. If you're the IT guy at work, you know that not only do you have a problem because you're the IT guy probably, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. But, but it's funny. But it's funny. So leave it in there. I've left worse things. <laughs> yeah. To be honest. <laughs> Every company has people that are doing this at work. Every family has somebody that's dealing with this or lots of people. I would guess that 40% is not far off for this. It sounds low to me. Yeah. Sounds low to you. That's low from what I've heard too. Yes. Yeah, I'm just thinking in terms of current active addiction, I guess. In the type of situation that I'm talking about, which is people that you think don't have problems. People yeah. that are outwardly expressing that right. this is not a good thing. 
It's really shameful. We can really use people that are supporting us as men. You know, people are so quick to protect children and women. A man does something that's seen as bad. We just don't get treated very well. We shouldn't do bad things. And we, we need to be careful because this is a very serious problem. The chance of going back to looking at pornography again or whatever other sexual behavior is very high. So we have to be careful, but people need to people need to love us too. Yeah. And in terms of seeing addicts, this is not limited to men. Within addiction recovery, with sexual addiction, you have lots of women that struggle with addiction. Lots of women that struggle with fidelity and with pornography and with self-stimulation. Men that struggle with pornography, that it has to do with homosexuality and it has to do with bisexuality and all these different things. People feel bad about what is going on in their life and we just need to love people. We gotta be so, so much more open. I wish I had all the solutions. Like record a podcast about it, you mean? <laughs> right. If we could get addicts to record a podcast and be open about it in that kind of a way, this world might change, you know? What? We're changing history, people, <laughs> right now. <laughs> We're going to wrap up so we can start part three. We're going to talk to both of you about your marriage. What, what? Okay. As we're wrapping up part two from the perspective of the addict in recovery, Eric, if someone's listening that's struggling because they have a pornography addiction, what do you want to say to them? The first thing is probably the person listening, they may not identify with having a pornography addiction. And please, it doesn't hurt anything to say I have an addiction and it gives you the path. The path is, it is openness, it is connection, it is working with other people. It is not by yourself. You have to go to someone and talk to them before you've gotten out of it. You can't wait because you're not going to change by yourself. You have to go and say, I'm this horrible person. You're not a horrible person, but that's what you're going to want to say. I'm this horrible person and I'm not changing. So now what? You got to go have a conversation with someone. You got to go to someone that you can trust. Be careful. Pick someone that you can trust. You can't control what they do. Pick someone that you can trust and tell them that you have this problem. We'll leave the link, but 12-step meetings are fantastic. You know, our church's meetings are really good. The Sexaholics Anonymous meetings are really good. Obviously, there's a wide variety, and some of them are not the same as others. But go to meetings. Don't be afraid to say, I have a problem. It's okay. We all do. It may not be pornography addiction, but maybe we're torture rats or whatever. I don't know. Torture rats. <laughs> Maybe you have a problem with control. Maybe you overspend. overspend. There's a higher power out there that can help you. And all of the wonderful people around you want to help you. We talk about that a lot. But people, when you talk to them, they are good. Brianna was mean to me. Okay. She wanted me to hurt or whatever. <laughs> but people that I didn't betray and crazily, everyone who I've talked to about it has been good to me. You know, they may not have understood, they may have told me stupid things, but they've treated me well. And nobody's treated me like I was, like I'm afraid that they're going to treat me, that I'm some kind of pervert or bad person or something. Your future is not stuck. Your future is not this forever. This isn't who you are. You will be different. You will succeed. It's such an amazing thing. It's powerful stuff. 
You know, I've had some more well-known people on here, authors and public speakers, and my hope is that this episode will get more attention than any of those. If you felt something, will you do me a favor? Will you share this specific episode with five people you know? Will you share on your Facebook, your Twitter accounts, your Instagram? And don't just share the link, but say something about why you think it's important. I want this episode to be more popular than any episode I've done with people who are a little more well-known in the public. I want this message to get out there. It's important, and I feel the power behind it. I'm excited to watch my little graph over here on my computer. I'm excited to see the listens. Let's save lives. Let's make history. If you want to financially support this podcast, go to icupodcast.com and click support the podcast. Friday, I will release the finale of this pornography addiction series, Hope in Recovery, where Eric and Brianna will discuss together with me the hope and joy they feel in their recovery and what they are doing to stay there. My name is Julie Lee, and I see you.